Before we start this episode, I'd like to thank our two sponsors, Autodesk and Digistore, for supporting the creative community and making this episode possible. I'd also like to thank SIGGRAPH Asia, where we recorded this interview. Now, let's get into it. Hello, my name's Matthew Packwood, and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation, and visual effects artists. Today, I'm going to have a chat with Luke Hetherington from Industrial Light and Magic. He's the executive in charge of both the Sydney and Singapore studios. Luke started his career in the mid-90s as a CG artist, working in broadcast design and TVCs at Extro Design, before moving on to Garner McLennan Design to work on the TV series Farscape. Luke then spent 17 years at Animal Logic where he transitioned from being an artist to being a manager, where he worked on film franchises such as Happy Feet, Harry Potter and the Lego movies. In 2017, he moved to ILM Singapore where he's overseen movies such as Ready Player One, Solo, Avengers Infinity Wars and Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. Thanks very much, Luke, for coming in and sharing your time with us today. Thanks, Matthew. It's great to be here. Looking forward to it. What software do ILM use and which software do you create yourselves? Well, without going into all the details, we do use a lot of third-party software, well-known ones, Maya, Nuke, Katana, things like that. Yep. But we do have a lot of proprietary tools, things like Xeno, which is ILM's own 3D package, which we use throughout the pipeline. And yep. We have a lot of custom software within our real-time tools, virtual production tools, have a lot of custom tools there too. ILM have been running for 45 years. They've been creating tools for, for all that time. Literally dozens and dozens and dozens of proprietary internal tools too. Do they actually sell many of those tools out onto the market for use by other studios? Well, ILM's got a big history with open source establishing standards within the industry and then sharing those. So certainly from an open source perspective, they've been a really key driver in trying to provide tools that help the industry yeah. push things forward, but also work in more standardized ways. How does ILM's pipelines differ between studios? We're pretty canonical across all of our sites. There are some subtle differences between the different studios, which is mostly down to just differences in local artist knowledge, local artist skills. Obviously, you need to be able to recruit people yeah. to come in and work with the tools that they're used to. So we've made a couple little differences yeah. for that reason. But otherwise, we're really standardized across the ILMs. Cool. Excellent answer. When it comes to pipeline, what do you prefer more or think is more effective, investing in new technologies or investing in the actual improvement of the pipeline? The thing I've realized at ILM is that they really put the artist experience first rather than try and dictate a tool set or dictate a pipeline. The pipeline is designed to be pretty flexible for artists to use different tools and different packages. Yeah, It's all about what's going to help the artist get the best result done in the time that they have. Yep. 
it's a very flexible pipeline. Ultimately, you have to find a balance between new technologies, refining existing technologies, and making the tools that you have just usable from an artist interface. Can you talk a little bit about capability and usability and why that's important? Artists are going to sit there day after day using tools. Yeah. So what the tool is capable of is one thing, but having interfaces and tools that are just easy to understand, that are intuitive, that provide fast feedback visually, all those things, yeah. are also really important as we try and become more and more efficient. Are universities in the Asia-Pacific region providing you with good quality graduates? Well, all of our studios, I think, have developed really great partnerships with education. Yeah. And we have a studio training group, which is our global team, that partner with the local studios and trainers with local studios to develop the programs. We do a lot of outreach with schools. Uh, in Singapore, we've got relationships, really good relationships with you know, probably half a dozen different schools. Yep. We spend a lot of time helping, uh, advising them on curriculum, attending industry nights, going and visiting students and giving them an idea of what we do at ILM, what we're really looking for. Yeah. Over time, these programs have become more and more understanding of what companies like us are actually looking for. So what are those things you're looking for from education providers and what are the programs presently doing? A lot of the programs tend to become kind of focused on content and having courses where they help the students make short films or produce content as opposed to really focusing on a craft, yeah. a discipline, learning how to model, learning how to animate, uh, which are really the skills that we're looking for. So if you were talking directly to a student who wanted to become in as an entry-level person, you'd tell them to learn a particular craft or skill? within a studio, uh, particularly bigger companies like ILM, where we tend to become pretty specialised within the teams. And we're really looking for entry-level artists who can do a particular part of the pipeline well enough to get started. Yep. And then obviously they can learn a lot from there. So I think the answer is yes. Um, setting up now in Sydney, we're also uh, exploring partnerships with Australian providers, uh, universities and colleges within New South Wales. Cool. As we set up and look to invest in the local talent in Australia. And do you actually bring in many recent graduate new recruits? Within a company like ILM, where you're not doing as much of the simpler level work, it's really about having good onboarding programs, good internships, yeah. different ways to bring people into the company and get them established on the way we do things, our tool sets, yeah. before we plug them into projects. Yeah, absolutely we do. Cool. It's one of the things I'm really excited about the Sydney studio is doing that and looking to... Uh, through our different Jedi Academy programs, uh, partnering with the schools, really looking for the future generation of talent and bringing them into the company is going to be really exciting. Does ILM have any internal training systems for existing and new employees? We do. We've got an amazing studio training group headed by Danielle O'Hare in San Francisco and they partner with all of the studios. Things stay consistent across the sites. Yeah. We do a lot of sharing of training materials across the different studios. We have technical trainers that cover different parts of the pipeline in each location. Yeah. If you're coming into one discipline, you might learn from a technical trainer in another site, uh, as well as yeah. tech leads and supervisors in the studio that you're in. So we really try and make the most of that global uh, capability and resources. We do uh, a lot of onboarding training during the early weeks. Yeah as well as ongoing artist training, whether it be teaching new software or just teaching creative 
creative things, whether it be life drawing, whether it be come and uh, learn Python coding and all these other things, which are just good supportive things for people to learn. So if you come in and you don't know everything, you're going to be supported. Absolutely. I honestly feel like really look at ILM as almost a university kind of atmosphere. You know, I really think there's a teaching and learning culture within the company. I think there always has been. People are really enthusiastic about helping each other out. And it's more than just that um, you ask somebody next to you a question, they'll go above and beyond. They'll they'll stop what they're doing. They'll say, you know, they'll share tips and tools. And I think it's one of the things that people love about the company. I can't. Yeah. Honestly, you can't think of a better place as a developing artist to come and be and just be surrounded by that experience and just feel like you can ask and look at what people around you are doing. It's definitely the best way to learn in this industry. What does it take to land a job at a studio like ILM and then thrive? You need to be able to quote all lines from Star Wars movies. <laughs> no, you, look, I think obviously we're looking for people with talent, whether it be creative talent and having a great aesthetic eye somebody that can look at an image and art direct how to make it better. People who are very technically capable, people who have a knack for developing code, yep. for being smart in terms of developing ideas of how to do things. Yep. On top of that, I think we look for people who have ambition to do great work. What other attributes do you think are important? People who want to be the best, people who want to be working teams, people who are generous about working with others, cooperative, sharing. I think the person side of it, the people side of it, has become more and more important over the years. As the teams become more global, as these projects become bigger, having people that can get along, yep. that can share, that want to work with people, want to learn from people, yep. and you get the sense that you know this, this person's going to come into the company and really be part of that culture is also a really big part of it, which can maybe be a little bit forgotten when people are learning and trying to learn how to use a piece of software yep. or learn how to render something they can forget sometimes just how important that side of it is. So you're looking for personality skills and like fitting in skills as well. How much sort of a percentage would you say that that's important? took me about 15 years to figure that part of it out in my career. You know, I thought it was all about making great images, satisfying the client, that side of it. Obviously, that's super important. The companies want to do great work. Yeah. But if you can't build good partnerships and relationships with the people around you, you're going to ultimately reach a ceiling. Yeah. So it's always the advice I give to people getting into the industry. Be enthusiastic, be passionate, absorb what's around you, be offering to help, be offering to um, take on more things and just be that great partner for the people around you and you'll, uh, you'll do really well that way. What movies inspired you when you were growing up outside Star Wars? <laughs> The first movies I really remember making an impression on me were things like Jason and the Argonauts, you know, those stop-motion skeletons, that Ray Harryhausen stuff. Yep. Um, as a kid watching that on the TV, those skeletons scared the hell out of me, but I also couldn't look away. Yep. Every time that movie came on, I would wait for those parts where you had that stop-motion stuff, and it just it would really fascinate me. I remember my sister watching all those old epic movies, the Ten Commandments, and... Ben-Hur and, and all those big old movies from the 50s and 60s where they'd have thousands of extras and these huge sets and they would kind of transport you away to another world. So definitely they were the first ones. As I got a little bit older, I was drawn to the films that created something really imaginative. Could you give us some examples of the sort of films that you're talking about and what period of your childhood was this? 
I grew up in the 80s. I was called Luke. My nickname through all of school was Skywalker. So, I mean, movies like Star Wars obviously made a huge impression on me growing up. That's, I think, why being at ILM right now as we're finishing episode nine is means so much to me as it does so many people at the studio who were inspired by it growing up and so many people in the industry when you ask them, what, what, what was the thing that got you into it? Yeah. How often is the answer Star Wars? How often is the answer Jurassic Park? Yeah. Those movies, E.T. and Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, The Abyss with that water character, the pseudopod. Yeah. I remember seeing Terminator 2 in a cinema with friends in 1991, I think, and just freaked out at the computer graphics. I went back the next day on my own because I wanted to just watch it again and concentrate on the CG stuff. Yeah. And I knew I wanted to work in this field when I saw that. It gave you that, how are they doing this kind of feeling. That was really exciting. And then Jurassic Park came out a couple of years after that and changed a lot of things. I'd heard of Industrial Light and Magic through all of that. I started to realize they had kind of done all these movies I had grown up loving. It really registered with me. I just recently went back and saw the latest installment of The Terminator. James Cameron was part of it. And I'm like, I really wanted it to be a good step forward. Right. And I had all the reminiscent feelings of being back in the early 90s of seeing the other one. Yeah. It literally looked fantastic. That was the um, the highlight of it. And yeah, a bit of a spoiler, it just didn't deliver, but it still <laughs> felt great. It put me back in that time when I was a kid and I was seeing those movies, Star Wars and Indiana Jones stuff. Yeah. It was culturally epic. Yeah, it definitely stayed with a lot of people. The new Terminator movie was an island project too, so it was kind of nostalgic seeing that work go through the studio for that same reason. Very cool. Briefly describe your career path. How did you start working in CG and animation? After high school, I was a little bit lost how I got into film visual effects. I was living in Adelaide, South Australia, which was pretty remote for the industry at that point in time. There wasn't a lot of tertiary programs yet. Yeah. I started doing a Bachelor of Architecture at Adelaide University, which wasn't really my core interest, but I thought the computer graphics side of that might be interesting. Yeah. I remember going to the opening class of the course and the lecturer told us in the very first day to kind of leave behind all of our creative aspirations of being the next great architect and gave us all these stats about how most architects end up doing bathroom extensions and pretty mundane jobs. And that might be true, but it completely destroyed it for me. I remember sitting there thinking, this is not for me. I ended up leaving after about a semester and joining a design course, which had just opened up at one of the tapes here. Yeah. Taught myself Photoshop and 3D Studio and some interactive tools. And then I kind of got my break. The government opened up a multimedia center, I think in each state of Australia, to develop understanding in computers and this new thing called the internet. Yeah. Which It sounds crazy to say that now, but when I was at school, it shows how old I am. Internet was just becoming a thing. Do you remember getting your first email address? Yeah, I think I got a Yahoo or a, one of those. It was a fascinating time. My college instructor was really big on it. I remember him sitting us down and showing us a website, which was a reconstruction of a one of the famous European galleries, and he said to us, look at this, you no longer need to travel to Europe. You can just walk around the virtual version of the gallery. All I remember seeing on the screen was a bunch of blue walls yeah. with little pictures in the middle of the paintings and thinking, that really does not look anything like the real place. Yeah. But here we are uh, with all this virtual uh, immersive entertainment where you really kind of can visit those places and feel like you're there. It's pretty remarkable. 
When I was at uni, universities were special because they had good computers. Right. And going in and using the good high-quality computers that we couldn't afford to buy. Well, at high school, pretty... I remember taking my Commodore Amiga into school so I could do um, Deluxe Paint 4 animations for my major project because they didn't have any computers that could run animation software. Yeah. So I think I was ahead of the school at that point in time. Yeah. During that college course, our instructor came in one day and said this government center was going to open up in six months or so. They were going to have a media day and needed some students to come in and sort of be props so that the place didn't look empty during the media day. Was anybody interested? And I remember us all sitting there thinking, oh, it's on a Sunday. This doesn't sound super appealing. And then he said they had a Silicon Graphics computer lab at the center. And I remember just putting my hand up as quick as I could and saying, I'm up for that. Yeah. So I got to go in for that day. There was media there. It was an announcement saying this new center was opening up in six months' time and to get people interested. But I got a day of being taught how to use these SGI machines and how to launch Alias Power Animator, and I was addicted. It's like, okay, this is the stuff I want to be using and this is the stuff I wanted to learn. Had you made the connections between computers and movies at that point? This was mid-90s, so it was after Jurassic Park, and I absolutely knew the kind of software that they were using on those films. It was just really hard to get access to it at the time, and here was an opportunity to, to do that. Yeah. I remember the day after that media event, rather than going back to my college on the Monday, I went back to the center to find out what was going on. Uh, they were still building the place. They were cabling and they were drilling. And I went and found the education manager, Kevin, and I remember saying, hey, what's happening here? Is there any way you could let me in and keep learning, keep using those SGI machines in that nice room there? Because it doesn't look like anyone's using them. I remember him going inside to make a phone call and I was standing outside thinking, I really, really hope he lets me go in. Yeah. He came back out and looked at me and said, don't break anything. And uh, i never forget that moment. I went in, sat down, really excited in this beautiful new room. Yeah. They had a Silicon Graphics Onyx, four CPU Onyx, four or five Indies yeah. in this room. And then I kind of realized I didn't know how to use them. So I went back out, asked them if they had the manuals, which I ended up finding upstairs, book after book after book, carried them downstairs, and sat there and taught myself. And I remember expecting to get kicked out at some point. I thought they'll kick me out this afternoon or they'll kick me out tomorrow when they realize I'm not meant to be here. So I would get there on the first train and get the last train home. They never ended up kicking me out. I ended up teaching myself the tools over the next six months and then they offered me a job to actually uh, teach the programs the following year, which was a lot of fun. Cool. That next year I was able to make a short film um, using that software and that became my showreel and was the beginning of my career. Wow, that's interesting. So you were technically minded from the beginning. Well, I was creatively minded and I had a definite fascination for the technical tools for computers and for programming and for computer graphics in general. So I think I was motivated by wanting to learn things that could help me realize ideas visually. Now, you didn't just start working at ILM. From when you left Adelaide yeah. until where you are now, what happened? Well, I kind of went from fortunate opportunity to fortunate opportunity. I was offered a job at a design company called Extra Design in Sydney, which was a fantastic company yeah. run by genuinely creative and genuinely nice people. I met some great producers there. I met some great artists there. And um, it was a great first experience. 
I wasn't there for that long because Gannon McLennan, which was a, a company doing some beautiful design and broadcast work at the time, was setting up a TV series, which was Farscape, and they were setting up a new team yeah. to work on that for a couple of years. And it was kind of the buzz of the town at the time. They had lots of great talent there, and I really wanted to get in on that. I was able to get an interview, and they offered me a job as a junior 3D artist, and I was just over the moon. I remember standing there... It felt like the beginning of something exciting. It was a team of maybe 10 or 15 3D artists, 10 or 15 2D artists. Yeah. A really good production team. And it just gelled. So what was it actually like to work there? The atmosphere of the place was great. There was creative ambition. They had brought people in from different places around the world, from Digital Domain and Weddo, and we just had... It just felt like a great team. And over the next almost two years, I felt like I kind of learned so much. I learned how to manage people like Andrew Helen, who was the head of 3D, Steve James, who was the other head of 3D, who went on to work at Pixar for 17 or 18 years. They were brilliant at what they did, but they also put their arm around you and sort of led you down the path of how to approach creative, how to try things, how to not get too far along the way with ideas too soon, how to work with other people. And it was just it was just this great mentorship for a couple of years and great team unity. And my memory of that experience, and I think if you ask most of the people who were on that team when they think back, it was just a great togetherness where everyone was really in sync. And when you can find that, you realize the efficiency that you gain is kind of really hard to quantify, but really significant. And even now, like it's 20 years on from that show, I still reference back to it just in terms of how things were set up and how well people worked together. The guy that I interviewed in the last podcast, Octavio, he uh, worked there after you finished and he said that that was his training ground to work in the industry. Right. So after you left GMD, where did you go from there? After that, I moved to Animal Logic. I had some friends who had moved to Animal Logic in the couple of years I had been at GMD. People like Lara Hopkins, who had been a producer at Extro, Ivan Moran, who's now a VFX soup, um, were over there. You know, they said, you should come over here, you'll do really well. Yeah. So I was able to get a senior animator role, I think it was, in their commercials team. Yeah. They were interested in setting up a Maya team because they were software mouse based in 3D at the time and they could see that Maya was coming as a tool yeah. and they wanted to be in on that and they were setting up a Maya team. So it was a great chance to join. The company was doing commercials, they were doing film, visual effects sequences, they had made their name with some cool work on Matrix and Moulin Rouge and were a a really dynamic company. After I'd been there for about six months, a good friend, Michael Gracie, asked me to come and take some months off to animate his short film, Babyfoot, which I had known him for a couple of years and that project and I was really inspired by it. Is that the same director who directed The Greatest Showman with Hugh Jackman in it? Yeah. That's pretty cool. And was it easy to get the time off? I went to talk to Animal Logic and they were just really generous about letting me take some time off to go and do that. They could see that I, I really cared about it. I ended up spending nearly six months with Michael and another animator animating that project, which was the thrill of a lifetime. He taught me what it really meant to be passionate about your work and think like a filmmaker and think like a storyteller every day in the animation and work that you do. Yeah. The only rule he had when I went to work every day was do the best work you've ever done, which was a pretty inspiring rule to work to when you turn up at work every day. Inspiring but daunting. Well, you know, he was like, I just want you to feel like you can come here and do the best stuff you've ever done. That's all I want for me. 
So you finished up on the short movie and returned to Animal Logic. What happened next? Shortly after, I was offered a chance to be the supervising animator of that commercials team and build it up a little bit, which was like super fun. Uh, I think we went from six or seven people to maybe 15 or 20 over the next year or two. And it was my first experience in hiring people and trying to figure out what we're looking for when we bring people into a team. It was a group that probably stayed together for five years, Yeah, worked really well together. And, you know, I remember prioritizing let's just hire people that we think we're going to get along with. Yeah, We were working pretty long hours at the time as we were all learning and we all wanted to push every job to 110% and we really, really cared about what we were doing. We figured we'd probably spend a lot of time with each other. Like, let's just hire people that we think it's going to be enjoyable to be around and it kind of worked. Maybe we got lucky, but that team stayed together for the best part of five or six years and it was a really good time. So when did you transition out of doing TVCs and uh, post-production work and into the other roles that you had after that? It was probably around 2003 or four. Happy Feet had come along, George Miller's first animated film, and that kind of changed everything at Animal Logic. The f- existing film team mostly moved across to start the animated feature division, which gave us an opportunity to expand the commercials team to start taking on the film visual effects. So it was kind of a win-win for everybody. Yeah, The film guys had this whole crazy challenge of how they were going to produce an entire animated feature pipeline and scale of project. And the commercials group had the opportunity to step in and take on some film work. So it was, it was a really exciting time. Everybody was doing something new. Uh, we were scaling up in a big way. We went from about 100 people, I think, to about 600 people in a year or two. We went from a local animation company to a very international studio that suddenly had to think about what it took to hire people from 35 or 40 countries around the world and what artists coming over from North America or Canada or the UK were looking for and what their expectations were. Uh, So we changed policy, we changed titles, we changed structures, we did all sorts of things over those few years. Which movies did you work on the tools on? The transition I made at Animal Logic after the early years working commercials, which was just a lot of fun, honestly. Yeah. When we started to transition that team into film visual effects, it was projects like House of Flying Daggers with Zhang Yimou, which was really fun project because the creative was so interesting and just kind of was put to us to come up with ideas, which was really good. Yep. Um, projects like Stealth, projects like Harry Potter 4. And you were animating... Uh, I was sort of supervising 3D at that point in time, so I was still on the box. I would jump in and I would do things as needed to help out, and I was sort of more and more becoming a supervisor, but at that point in time, still definitely close to the tools. And how did you feel? Were you like in the management area at that time, or were you actually more on the tools area? At that time, I think I was head of 3D, across the the film, visual effects, and TVC group, which wasn't a huge team. We're probably talking between 20 and 30 artists. Uh, So I was something of a department supervisor slash manager. I would partner with the production teams to figure out what the shows were going to be. I would help them bid the work and quote the work. Then I would go upstairs with the 3D team and we would work out how to divide the work up, who was going to do what, who would take on which project. We knew each other really well, and there's a lot to be said for having that shorthand, keeping teams together, yeah, 
because a lot of that management effort goes away. You can kind of just, everyone sort of knows their part. Yep. Everyone goes off and does it and you don't spend that awful lot of time figuring that out. Yeah. So we were pretty efficient. I was still on the box some of the time. I was looking after the dailies and the rounds and giving people their briefs and giving them the timeframes uh, and dealing with the VFX soups on the shows to make sure they were, they were getting what they were looking for. And was there a time in there that you realized that you enjoyed doing the management work more than doing the artistic work on the box? Yeah, I think management is just as creative as being an artist on the box and being a producer or an executive producer, all these roles, even though they tend to be thought of as more a production or management based, I think they're equally creative. I feel like if you think of a producer and a VFX supervisor, the VFX supervisor obviously is the creative lead, ultimately going to be the driving voice of the creative. Yeah. But they also have to be very production-minded. They have to be thinking about time and budget and uh, all these things too. And likewise, the producer, while they may be the lead on getting the show done on time and budget, yeah. they also have to be creative-minded and understand what you're trying to make and what the images need to be and be understanding and supportive of what matters and when. Yeah. So coming from an artist background, you sort of already understood how an artist thought, what an artist needed to, to feel good about what they were trying to do, yeah. when to push and when not to. And at least I, I felt like I had something to lean on as I started to become um, more of a supervisor or more of a lead across teams. So you get a lot of satisfaction out of the guiding and direction and you go home at the end of the day if you haven't been on the computer at all, yeah. as in management-wise, and you feel satisfied? Absolutely. I. One of the things was you also could see that there were a lot of people around you that were much better at doing things than you are. You know, while I had things I was good at when I was an artist on the box, you would look around you and go, but this person's an amazing animator. I'll never animate like this person. And yeah. this person over here is so technically savvy fixing things and coming up with tools. You start to realize that the the sum of all those parts is so much greater than anything you could do on your own. Yep. And the satisfaction that you can get by figuring out how to configure to get the most out of everybody and to motivate people and try and get work done can be really satisfying too. And when you can help somebody find a path to where they want to get to and help map that out so that they can sort of reach their potential, that's really rewarding. Cool. After that period, when you realised that you were good at management, what were the next steps that you took before you got to ILM and then the steps that you did at ILM? So from there, as the company expanded and grew over the following years, I took on roles like head of production, head of film visual effects, taking on the business division, bottom line responsibility, yep. and producing and executive producing. Those were the roles that I, I took on in the last six or seven years at Animalogic or so before moving to ILM as an executive producer and now executive in charge. Over the years, which projects do you think were the most successful and satisfying? Working on Ready Player One in the first year I was at ILM was really satisfying. And the work the team was doing blew me away every day. You've got Roger Guyette and Steven Spielberg reviewing the work and giving you creative direction. The re results were really rewarding. Yeah. It was really satisfying to get through that. And I have to say, being an ILM for the production of episode nine has been the most rewarding thing of my career just because of what the films meant to me growing up. Yeah. Overseeing an ILM while that project went through meant the world to me. How does it feel when you realise that you're going to have your work reviewed by like Steven Spielberg, who obviously you would have 
thought as a pretty impressive figure when you were a child. Inspiring, you know, seeing uh, the artists have the opportunity to put their work up to Stephen each day. Yeah. Roger Guyette, these uh, famous, brilliant supervisors and directors, but they are story focused, you know, and they're always looking at the image and figuring out how it best serves the story, how it best serves the character, how it best serves what's happening in the movie. Yeah. And they're brilliant at just focusing you in on that. And is it a video conference that you have? Usually, a video conference. We might be video conferencing into San Francisco so we can see each other. We're talking through the work. Yeah. If it's a client review, we'll be able to hear Stephen or hear JJ as they're talking through the work and getting the comments back so we know what to go and do next. Do you actually feel a personal connection when you're working with them because you're working with them for a period? Some of these projects run for a year or a year and a half. Ready Player One was at ILM for nearly three years. So over that time, you definitely um, build a connection with the supervisors in the other studios, with the teams that you're working with globally and ultimately with the clients as well. Have you had any failures in your career? And what did you learn from them? Well, this podcast would be way too long if we went into all of them in detail. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I think I was really lucky to be in a company that accepted that I was learning. You know, I was kind of growing up, really, both as a person and as a professional over those years. Yeah. And I think they knew I wasn't going to get things right all the time. Um, They took the good with the bad because I think they could see that I was capable and I was driven and I was working hard and I was trying. Yeah. I thought it was all about the final image, about the result, about just making great work at any cost. Yeah. You know, I had some great managers who would spend a lot of time mentoring me about how to work with people, how to learn when a relationship or a partnership needs to come first rather than the result. Yep. And they were really patient with me because honestly, I think it took me a really long time to understand those things when I look back. I was like, man, I must have drove them crazy. (laughs) Um, But everyone was really supportive and I did learn. I think now when I look back, I feel like those areas are my strong suits because I've put so much thought into them. I've had so much mentorship over the years that I'm very uh, considered about those things now and realize how much difference they can make yeah. both to a project and to a team, but also to an individual trying to progress. Ultimately, they're the things that are going to hold you back if you can't figure out how to work with others. Yeah. And I think they could see that in me and really invested to help me get past it, which was great. So with those failures, do you think that you wouldn't have achieved what you have today if you hadn't addressed them? I don't think I could have grown into the same kind of roles where, you know, you're really trying to facilitate teams to work together. You're trying to find uh, middle grounds and solutions to get everybody feeling involved and motivated. I don't think I would have managed to get to those sort of positions if I hadn't had the feedback and the candid um, input from them to go, hey, Luke, you should think about this kind of stuff more. You're good with the creative. You're good with getting the work done you should focus on these things more because ultimately that's what it's going to come down to. So failures are good and important in your career? If you can learn from them and if you can be self-reflective and be willing to sort of step outside yourself and see it, yeah. they're probably the things that I learned from the most. Yeah. I think you can see it in people when you give them feedback and I believe you've got to give people a direct feedback that's honest and clear. If you're doing it from a place of, I'm telling you this because I think it's going to help you and there's a compassion to it, yep. 
people will usually appreciate that. Uh, people who can hear honest feedback and take it on board and go away and reflect on it, you know, ultimately they'll be able to do anything. We're just going to pause for a moment now, Luke. Okay. For a word from our sponsors. We'll be back in less than a minute after the break. There's some exciting news from Autodesk. You can now buy Arnold monthly, annually, or as a three-year single-user subscription. Arnold 6 can now render on both CPU and GPU. Arnold is now available on the Autodesk eStore. Also, Maya 2020 is out now, and it focuses on empowering artists by introducing new tools throughout the pipeline to help artists work faster. For 30 years, Digistore has provided solutions for the creation, management, storage and distribution of digital media. From animators and post-production facilities to broadcast operations, from single studios to collaborative networked environments, Digistore has you covered for all your hardware, software, support and training needs. Let's get back into it. Okay, cool. What did you learn the most when working in TVCs and broadcast design? Well, I think TVC in short form in general is just a great learning ground. Yeah. There's no time to overthink things. You just jump in and start making stuff. Yeah. Uh, you also tend to cover a lot of different projects in a short time frame, and each one of those projects tends to have its own challenges or its own its own needs. Uh, so it teaches you to be pretty upfront and inventive about how to get stuff done fast. It's all about shortcuts and smoke and mirrors and how do we get this done? We've got three days. I think it's a great way to start out. Uh, and it makes you a generalist. That's a great point. You learn a little bit of everything because you kind of have to and you jump in where you need to and you get this great foundation to then specialize on. So I think yeah. it's a great way to start coming out of a school program or a college, you know, to work in TV. And we're now doing a lot of TV at ILM uh, with the streaming work to kind of just be a little bit more involved in multiple things and then you start to specialize later on. So do you think that people can progress from making TVCs and into working into the larger productions? Absolutely. I think that it's great to have that broadness of knowledge so that you're going to end up partnering with departments later on if you specialise in a particular craft. Yeah. Those other skills are going to be different departments who you need to interface with. If you're an animator, you can understand what the layout department's doing. Or if you're a, a, a lighter and you can understand how compositors put shots together, those things are going to obviously help in working in partnership with those other artists. What challenges do you face when you become a supervisor? Usually people get to this point because they're really good at a particular craft. They're a top animator. They're a compositor with a great eye that makes great shots. They rise up and find themselves supervising and suddenly it's about helping production managing bids or helping others get their work done, giving creative direction at a moment's notice and, and all these things which are kind of new. Yeah. And these are all kind of major skills in their own right which can take years to really develop and refine. So usually there's a phase that people go through from being a really good artist to leading or supervising What's one of the things that you have to get your head around to become a good supervisor? Getting used to the idea of not solving it all yourself. It's really easy if you know you can go back to your desk and do it yourself and get something done. 
it's really tempting to just do that um, as opposed to to sticking with showing somebody else how to do it. Maybe that's going to take a little more time because you're going to have to try and show them. But obviously over time, that scales. And over time, you've now got a team who can do it. That's usually the thing that we got to get people through and supporting them to realize that you're not going to figure all the stuff out instantly as you transition from an artist to a lead or a supervisor and you're taking these things on. Yeah, It's going to take time. Uh, we need to just support them and uh, help them. Usually they have one or two parts of that that they're naturally good at and one or two things that don't come naturally. It's just about helping them identify that yeah. and develop it over time. Is it informal training or is it actually there is some sort of training around that sort of thing? It's both. Either being mentored on a project, so before you're doing it yourself, you've been put on a project with somebody who's good at those things so you can learn and observe and see how they go about it. It's probably the best way. And being in a company like ILM with all these really experienced supervisors and leads, it's a great learning ground to go and observe people doing it on projects before it's down to you. Yeah. But also this formal training that we do, we put a lot of effort into things like leadership training, communication uh, classes, how do you communicate with people best, how how do you work within diverse teams. We've got artists from all around the world working in five locations from different backgrounds, different cultures. We're very proud of building a very diverse group. Yeah. But that's also something you need to be conscious of and be thoughtful of and how do you work with different people. With all those things in mind are things that we run formal training on. Well, it's very good that you run formal training and you have that because like in a lot of the industry work, the TVC and the small studios, it's just you basically just got to teach yourself. Okay. And it is a very challenging thing to both do creative and lead people. Yeah. That's really good that you have the size and scale to do that. So what do you look for when you're hiring or promoting artists into supervising positions? Well, obviously someone who's at the top of their craft. Yeah. But somebody who's kind of comes across selfless, cooperative, they're more interested in developing a team capability um, than their own success. Yeah. I think at that point it's about, I want to help others, I want to build up capabilities, I want to invest in people coming into the company, the people that really get a kick out of that. Yeah. When you want to progress someone, how do you think that they should approach it? Should they come to you or do you think that you monitor to see how people are going or is it just when a job comes up? It's usually that you see them already starting to do it, just naturally within the role they're in. So you see a a senior artist start to take on responsibilities, start to step up, already helping their lead out, already helping production out. Usually it's more organic and you kind of go, this person is starting to do parts of the next job already. Yeah. And if that's an, an aspiration that they have and they want to do it, it usually then leads to finding opportunities to step up on a project. Yeah. And finding the right gradual kind of steps to get them there so it doesn't become too much too soon um, and it become an enjoyable transition where they can kind of learn over a few projects until the point where they feel really good about, hey, uh, I've got there now. Over your career, who influenced you and what did you learn from them? I think Michael Gracie was a, a good example of somebody who just coming at it from a purely creative point of view really taught me to put my mind into the content, what are we making, really think like the filmmaker, put your mind in the audience's position, Um, whether you're animating, whether you're making the visual of an image, um, whether it be art direction, lighting, whatever it might be, how are you furthering the content? So that was a great lesson to learn early on in my career and something I tried to always bring to the work that I was doing. 
being an ILM, uh, Rob Bredo, head of ILM, he always teaches us it can be okay not to be 100% across everything. You know, For me, where my role spans a lot of things at the same time, he's okay with me not being 100% across absolutely everything. Yeah. If that means that I can cover more ground and deal with the scope and you trust the people around you and accept the fact that every now and again you might miss a detail. Yeah. And that's okay, you can live with it as long as you know the big picture stuff is all moving forward. And he's very encouraging like that. It's a lesson that I've really tried to take on. That's interesting. Is it relevant to other areas? Can you expand on that a little? Trying not to obsess over tiny technical details in shots, which probably no one's going to see. Sure, you get the people that frame, freeze through Star Wars movies and look for the mistake. Yeah. That's okay with us. We don't mind that there's the occasional mistake. If one person out of a thousand notices it, we're better off putting our energy into the next thing that everyone's going to really feel when they watch the movie. And there's lots of great examples that Rob talks about and some of the others in the studio have put up to go, hey, look, here's a famous shot. Actually, there's an error here. No one really noticed it because it's a great shot and it's impactful and it's compelling and that's what people are carried away in. Focus on that stuff and don't worry so much about the perfect part. Well, at least you can't leave a coffee cup like Game of Thrones. (laughs) There's always a coffee cup somewhere. What makes the staff and the whole studio perform well and have a good culture? I think ILM's got a company culture of pioneering, doing things that have never been done. I think that brings people together. Um, There's kind of a fearless confidence and a collaborative style of working at the company. I think if you can be transparent with people so they kind of get, they have enough of an idea of what's going on and what's coming up um, so they feel informed, they don't feel left out, they'll feel better. Yeah. And just be clear with people, be clear with what the expectations of, if they know what they need to do and what you're looking for, they'll focus on it and do a great job. Do you don't think that the studio environment and the, the setup of the studio actually affects the culture? Do you mean the physical space? Yeah. Of course it does. and I, I think everyone's putting a lot of time more and more into how to put teams together, how to group teams, what kind of space to put them in, Yeah. whether it be open. Uh, I think everyone's got their own ideas, but certainly something we try and be thoughtful of. I love walking into any ILM because usually there's a stormtrooper standing at reception or R2-D2 in the corridor really difficult not to walk in and be inspired by those things but honestly I think the environment mostly comes down to the people around you and what they bring and yeah that's the most inspiring part of it what are the things that you need to know to become a good executive producer well I think learning how the studios and the productions operate yeah so that you can put yourself in their shoes. How can you best help them achieve what they're trying to do on their project in a way that's going to be fair and enjoyable for everybody yep that's what I always tried to do. I always said if I was in this person's shoes trying to manage this project across five or six different companies, what would I want from me Yeah. Uh, in terms of helping them do that and helping to make their life as easy as possible? And apart from that, just being really honest about what you think you're capable of or the studio that you're representing, what capacity do you have, how much can you take on for them? Yeah. It can be very tempting to say yes to everything and yes, we can. Yeah. I always just tried to be really honest about what I thought we could do. That was something they appreciated. It's better to be here sometimes, we're not going to be able to do all of that, than to hear, yes, we can, and later on things become difficult. Do you ever find that nerves or emotions come into it 
And how do you sort of handle that when you're working at a high level? I'm not a naturally super nervous person. It can be intimidating going to visit executives at Warner Brothers or visiting a company like ILM that asks them if you can outsource work and those sorts of things. But I think if you just bring your own personality to it yep. and you're honest and you're upfront, yep. you usually get a really great reception from people. And ultimately, they're trying to get their job done. They're looking for help too. That's why you're engaged. So everybody um, gen- tends to make it pretty comfortable. You're trying to satisfy their creative needs, but also satisfy their financial needs. You know, you're running over budget. Is there like a, do you have like strategies for that? Yeah, I think it's partnerships. You know, you have um, the producers on the production side, the VFX executives at the studio partnering really closely with our executive producers and our producers to maintain a dialogue. And it can be literally day by day. What are you trying to get out of the dialogue to help you progress? Really what we want is to understand what the director's priorities are, what matters the most to the director in realising the vision. We want to put the money and the time and the effort to the things that are going to be felt the most when we see the movie and the things that the director wants to prioritize. So if you've got a really good trust relationship and dialogue with the director and with the team around the director and the production, everyone's talking about what things do we prioritize? Is this more important than that? When you can get into that and the director says, hey, look, this doesn't matter as much to me as this thing over here, um, then you're in a great place. Yeah. We will always try and do both of those things, but ultimately you know which one comes first and which ones, if you're going to end up missing something, it'll be that one over there. That's what builds a good partnership. How did you feel moving to ILM? Well, it was my career dream to work at ILM growing up. Watching all those movies, I was very proud working, uh, moving to work at ILM. And I was also really humbled um, to be invited into the leadership group of a company like that. Yeah. And when I arrived, you know, I felt really encouraged and really trusted. And they kind of welcomed me into the team. I just wanted to learn and absorb from ILM. And I kept hearing, we want to know what you think too. And I, and I realized that they, they really meant that the company leadership was very inspiring about welcoming me in and being open to somebody new. So being your actual childhood dream, yeah. you weren't intimidated or, or... I had my moments of feeling a little <laughs> overwhelmed for sure, but if even during the interviewing process, meeting people like Lin Wen, yeah. Gretchen, these people who've been at the company so long and have had all of the success. What was the interview like? The interview felt like a two-way conversation. Um, They wanted to know about me. They wanted me to feel comfortable with them. And it just, it really put me at ease. And when I actually got to the company and started working, that continued. So it was very, uh, it was a very enjoyable process. Can you briefly describe ILM size and locations? So San Francisco, which was the original headquarters for the company and continues to be Singapore was the first international studio set up, and then Vancouver, London, and now Sydney. Yeah. We're roughly 2,000 people globally. And do you see growth coming? Uh, I think growth will come down to project needs, studio needs. It's a very dynamic industry. Right now, I would suspect that our size uh, more or less continues, um, and then we'll, we'll adapt as need be. 
there's been rapid growth in the industry over the last 10 years. Do you think that it's going to continue on growing? It's possible that with TV streaming now, the volume of work that needs to get done each year could increase. If we look at the film release schedule, it's a somewhat capped capacity. The studios can only put so many movies out into cinemas each year. There's only so many weekends, there's only so many screens. That's not something that can expand that much. Some years you'll have more big visual effects movies than other years, but it doesn't vary that much. What about the television market? With TV streaming, that can change because obviously there's all of this content, there's all of these catalogs being developed, um, Disney Plus now live, and so on and so on. Yeah. With streaming, there's the potential that there's more visual effects content needed in any given year to service all of that, and the overall amount of work could increase. When I did the Game of Thrones interview, they said that they were like doing cinematics for TV. Do you think that the TV stuff is going to rise to the quality of the film stuff? Well, I think projects like Game of Thrones have shown that absolutely it can and have really kind of led the way along with a few other series. What's ILM doing in the television space? We're very proud of the stuff we've been doing in TV at ILM this past year or two as well. Mandalorian just hit screens. Mandalorian's pretty cool. How does your TV work compare with your film stuff? It's obviously a different way of working. The budgets, because of the volume of content you're producing, can't be the same cost per minute as a film. That hits visual effects. Yeah. The complexity on average, tends to be lower across a series than it might be in a feature film. Yep. The average shot cost will tend to be lower, but it's not about reducing quality. It's about finding different ways of working. What are the sort of things that you do differently? More efficiencies across the TV series because maybe you're doing more of the same kind of things so you can amortize things more. Yeah. A different creative process, working with showrunners on TV, um, trying to get the work through um, efficiently in terms of creative iterations, both internally how we work and through the clients, uh, the schedules that you're working on, delivering it, but depending on the, the type of series, it could be you're delivering an episode every few weeks that just isn't the time to iterate, 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 iterate. Yeah like you can afford to do on a film to really push things further. But the outcome is something that is materially of similar quality as a film. It's just run through that different process. So the short answer, yeah, I think TV and film are going to end up in a pretty similar place. In Game of Thrones, they focused on particular episodes with particular shots. And they threw their money at that. That's what it appears like. Partly from a scheduling point of view, obviously it's helpful if you've got a, a really epic episode with you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of visual effect shots, complex work, um, it can be helpful to have a, a follow-up or subsequent episode that has less in it. Yeah. Sometimes that's how those shows are managed. So what were your main challenges in your new role at ILM? Well, my, uh, I, I oversee ILM studios in Singapore and now in Sydney. Yeah. Um, that means managing the projects that we take on and which parts of them we take on to make sure it's a good fit with the teams that we have, both in terms of volume of work and also the nature of the work. Yeah. We're trying to find work that's going to be a good challenge and a good opportunity for our artists, but also is, is going to be doable. What's some of the things that you're responsible for? 
I'm responsible partnering with my career director, Nigel Sumner, and others to set up the right leadership teams for the projects, casting the right people to work together well. Yeah. And then ensuring that we've just got good practices running through the studio, good creative practices in terms of you know, a single layer of creative approval as much as that can be possible within the way we do things. Yep. Good technical processes, sharing methodologies between shows, good production practices to make sure that our producing teams are all, are all over um, the day-to-day throughput and targets and work so that we're working really efficiently. That's a lot of different things. But what are, what are like, say, a main challenge that you have? I think the main challenge is just ensuring that we keep great global relationships and great global communications between the studios. Yeah. We've got five studios working in five locations. Yeah. So I think the main challenge for my role is to make sure that as locations we stay in sync, we're helping each other out, we're partnering, uh, we're aware of what we're all up against week to week. Yeah. Um, so that that, that that level things are functioning really well and then within the studios the teams are just so good at getting the shows done. Have you got stuff that's done in the US and stuff that's done in Asia and they're just, they're, you're making the whole movie in two different locations? Usually we'll have a show in multiple islands. Depending on the size, we have projects that we might put through just one studio because it makes sense or it, it fits. Yeah. The Star Wars movies, I mean, episode nine has been through uh, all five studios. We just finished the sequence in the Sydney studio. So you're doing work in the Sydney studio? Yep. That's really cool. Um, so you end up with a project that's managed across five sites, four time zones. Yeah. Um, so make, making sure that there's good communication channel at the leadership level is super important. And just day-to-day, are you generally just doing meetings? Is that your day-to-day? <laughs> or do you spend a lot of time in spreadsheets and that sort of thing? <laughs> uh, it's a bit of all those things. I mean, as well as the stuff I mentioned. Yeah. Um, I'm responsible for taking the lead on external relationships for the studios, partnering with governments, industry, education, yeah. clients and business development sometimes, PR relations. So it's a lot. Yeah. You um, work with teams across the studios, um, try and give everybody a good enough high-level direction so they all know what to do. How do you avoid burnout in this competitive and challenging industry? Well, I think we have to work efficiently. I think we have to respect what we're asking of artists. You know, we ask our teams and our supervisors and our producers to just to be really thoughtful about when we're asking people to stay back late. If we get to the point where we're asking people to come in on weekends, then at least to be really thoughtful about the fact that it's definitely necessary. Yeah. When we run projects efficiently, we, we don't see huge amounts of overtime. Um, so... Yes, we do do some, you know, but I think we're, but I think we're usually pretty good at this. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think we all are looking to attract staff and keep staff, you know, within our companies. And to do that, we've got to find a sustainable, enjoyable life for them. And you know, for me, working at ILM um, has been a really good balance. Our teams work really hard when we get to the end of projects and there's a late change uh, sometimes it can be really tough to turn that around and and they do it for us yeah and then we try and look after them whether it be finding them time off making sure that they don't have to do it for sustained periods we don't ask people to work multiple uh, weekends on the run you know and and we definitely prioritize looking after them well, you've worked in the industry a long time there's a perception that this is like a hard 
long hours industry. And that was from when I was right. like finishing uni. And do you think that it's actually changed and got better? I don't know. Like I can only speak to my own experiences. When I was young and working at, in some of those roles we've talked about, I was working like crazy. I was working weekends, I was, I was working late nights. I very rarely was doing it because I felt like I had to or was being told to. I was usually doing it because I was just really into what I was doing. Yeah. But then you grow up, people have families, kids, um, <laughs> pets, hobbies, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, I think generally you start to um, have other priorities in your life and you can't keep doing that. Yeah. And I think the industry has matured. Yeah. There's more artists moving around these days and more studios. Do you reckon that has an effect on things? The industry has become more competitive from a talent retention and attraction point of view. And that it's good to see now that companies are really yeah. taking it seriously. Like, how do we look after our staff? They give us so much. Uh, we're nothing without our artists. Yeah. Um, so what are we doing as companies to look after them and make sure that they can do this for 10, 15, 20 years rather than a couple of years. Do you struggle with balance? Do you find it hard to switch off? I love my job and sometimes that can be the thing I have to remind myself yeah. to switch off from because I really do enjoy it. Yeah. I feel like if you're doing the hours because you want to do it and you're enjoying it, that's one thing. You know, you want your staff to feel like they're not obliged to do it. Yeah. I don't feel stress in my job at ILM because I don't feel like I'm expected to be up late or be expected to work crazy hours or be expected to work on weekends. Yeah. I feel like I'm trusted to do what I need to do in my role and they're very flexible about how I get there, when I do the hours, you know, they're more worried about how are things going than how am I, how exactly am I going about it, which takes a lot of the pressure off. It's pretty flexible. I can work on the go from my laptop or I can work from home sometimes when I need to. Yeah. Um, and that would be my advice to, to people is just to, do what feels good, um, and when it starts to feel like it's getting too much, just talk to someone um, and let them know. And That has been a big topic in the industry of people my age. Okay. Is that when you get to around 40, you start to have all these other commitments and yeah. it just becomes all overwhelming for a lot of people. It can. I think having flexible hours for people so that whether it be needing to um, drop their kids off at school or pick them up from school or things in between that just, it enables people to not have to give up their careers because of these other, because of having families and because of, because of these other um, things that are obviously so important in life. Yeah. You don't want to see people get to a certain point in life and then have to kind of sacrifice their career in order to do these other things. Yeah wherever it's possible, as far as it can be taken, we want to try and find flexibilities with people so they can continue their careers while uh, obviously focusing on things that are even more important in life. Is animation and visual effects a sustainable industry in Australia and Asia? Uh, we believe that it is. I think Australia is going to be really strong for us. We've got, like I said, great talent in this part of the world, a great lifestyle. Yeah. Um, a great city to be in down in Sydney, an ambitious industry of supportive government, great education, yeah, good incentive to bring work down here. So I don't see any reason why this can't be a really good time for the industry in this part of the world. I think Asia and Australia are really well placed to grow. 
and to give lots of opportunities in the years ahead and I can't wait to be a part of it. Now I'd like to talk about your new office in Sydney. Yeah. Why did you choose Sydney as your city instead of other cities in Asia? It's a good question and it's something that we put a lot of thought into. You know, at the end of the day, we felt like we got a combination in Sydney of great talent here, amazing lifestyle. It's a city that we feel like um, is going to be great for people to come and live. Yeah. We're here for the long term, so we want to be in places that we think people will enjoy coming to and staying. Yeah. Um, and build careers and have families and, and all those things. Yeah. I feel like there's great education institutes here to partner with a really supportive government, both the federal government in Australia and the New South Wales government have been super supportive of the industry and in putting up incentives that can help us attract work here. And, you know, it just all adds up to something that we think was something that we thought was a great opportunity. You could have come to Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's comedy. If there's anything else you want to talk about, about ILM, like is Sydney set up? For me personally, working in the Australian industry for 20 years before I moved over to work at ILM, I mean, I know that I would have loved to be able to work at ILM during my career. To work on those kind of projects and around those people would have been a dream. To be able to uh, be part of bringing the company here and setting up a studio, I think it's just going to provide some amazing opportunities for people in New South Wales and around Australia in terms of being a a, a centre of learning and of experience, it's going to be really exciting. And what long-term aspirations does ILM have for its studio in Sydney? Uh, Well, we're planning to build a large-scale ILM here over the next few years, you know, 300 to 500 people over the next few years. That's pretty big. Yep. It's going to be a big-scale studio. We'll cover a full pipeline of work here. Yeah. I'm sure we'll end up managing projects out of Australia once we've become more established. Um, There's lots of good films that are being made in Australia. Yeah. So it's a chance to tap into a new talent pool and bring talent down here. That's really great. So what's the first stage going to be? The first stage really is bringing ILM knowledge and ILM leadership and talent to Sydney to help us build it. Um, That's been the last couple of months of working through um, people from the other studios who are keen to move down here and help us build the studio. Yeah. Which we've already had a lot of success finding some amazing ILM people to come down and do it. So look for people locally, it's a chance to come and work with some of those people who have been at ILM for a long time and, and learn how we do things. It's going to be a lot of fun. And where should those people go if they're interested in applying to work? Do you have any websites? We do. They can go to ilm.com slash careers and they'll find our full list of opportunities there. Yeah. Um, and of course, we're at recruiting events. We're at SIGGRAPH this week and, and so on. They can uh, follow our Twitter and Instagrams and LinkedIn accounts and keep tabs on where we are and what we're doing when. What sort of work do you plan to work on in the Sydney studio in the coming years? Well, we just finished some work on Star Wars Episode Nine, which was an amazing project to launch a new studio with. Yep. Very exciting to see shots on that movie go through Sydney. 
over the next year, we have four, five, six probably projects already lining up for the next year or so. I would love to be able to tell you what all of those projects are right now. Uh, we're probably a little way away from announcing them, but some really exciting projects. Yep. More to come very soon. I imagine you'll announce more projects as the studio establishes. That's right. I mean, ILM.com, we list the shows that are in production. And then as we're recruiting and we're able to tell people what shows they might be coming in for, we will. And if not, then we're recruiting people into the studio, really. And then um, once they're here, then they'll, they'll, um, they'll be put onto different projects as they come through. I want to talk a little bit about inspiration. Where do you look for inspiration? Everywhere. I think inspiration is all around us. You know, the people that I work with every day, when I see what they're doing, how they go about doing, that inspires me. Just observing the world around us, whether it be reading a book, listening to music, writing, photography, I find all those things creative and all those things inspiring. I wish there was more hours in a day so I could do more of those things. Yeah. You know, but I just draw on, on all those things all the time. So what would you like to work on in the future? More Star Wars, please. Uh. <laughs> I think projects that allow us to push ourselves. The projects that come along because you've got to do something that has not been done before. Or people are looking at going, can it, Can we really do this? Is this how? Yeah. You know, um, that have required ILM to again come up with new ways of approaching it. They're the ones which kind of give you that, give you the chills. And um, so more of those. Well, that sounds exciting. So that's a great place to leave it. All right. Thanks very much for taking the time to come and see us here at SIGGRAPH Asia. I really appreciate it, and I think that the audience is going to get a lot out of this. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. I know you put a lot of time and effort into this, so I appreciate it too. All right, fantastic. Thank you. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you can come find Matthew Packwood on Facebook where I post everything you need to know about Masters of Motion. You can find out more about Luke at www.ilm.com. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week.